Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 22 is where I would invite your attention this morning and also with another finger to Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13 which you will notice is Isaiah's, the beginning of Isaiah's fourth servant song. And while you're turning to those two passages of scripture, I'm honored that my wife Sherry could be here today. I appreciate so very much her time here and her encouragement and the fact that I know she is praying for me and our son Jared who is a student here also seated by her it's a great blessing for me to have my family here today through the magic of time travel we are going back in time to three different time periods and locations when I snap my fingers in a moment we will be going back in time to the 15th century B.C., the late 15th century B.C. And we're there. You say, well, where are we? We're in the desert. Which desert is it? It's the desert between Egypt and the land of Israel. It is in the latter part of the century, and there are around us nearly one and a half million people. Who are these people? Why, these are Israelites making their way out of the land of Egypt from slavery on their way to the promised land being led by Moses. What specific date have we arrived? And the date is the tenth day of the seventh month. It is the highest and holiest day of Israel's religious festival year It is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the people have all gathered as best they can around the tabernacle. That huge piece of tabernacle with all of its furnishings and accoutrements. And on this day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest is conducting the ritual with the two goats. Now there are many other goats and many other sacrifices that take place that day. There's the morning sacrifice, there's the evening sacrifice, there are the festival sacrifices. But the central part is the slaying of one goat and the blood being shed and taken into the Holy of Holies by the high priest. And I see him this day as he's wearing his white garments, the the garments that he wears only on this day, the Day of Atonement. This is the day where the blood is shed and atonement is made for the sins of all the people in Israel. It's their high and holy day. People have packed the place out. They're crowding around the tabernacle, priest seeks. They're looking in to catch a glimpse of their high priest in the courtyard as he has selected the two goats, one for Yahweh and one to be sent away, the scapegoat. We have come at the point where he has already slain the first goat. The blood has been taken into the Holy of Holies. It has been sprinkled on the mercy seat and in the dust seven times before the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And now we see him as he comes back to the scapegoat. Now what will he do with this scapegoat? The goat originally was turned with its back to the people and then now it is turned facing the people. And we stretch, we're on the front row and we stretch to see and hear what's happening and we See the high priest as he stretches out his hands and places them upon the goat's head. And then he begins to utter some words. We lean forward to hear what is it he is saying. We can't quite make out every word, but we can understand that he is confessing the sins, his sins, all the sins of the priests and all the sins of the people. He's confessing those sins over the head of that goat. I wonder why he's doing that and I wonder what significance that has and what's going to happen as a result of that. When he completes that confession, he removes his hands and one stationed by that goat who is assigned the task of leading that goat out of the courtyard, out through the camp and outside the camp into the wilderness. He leads him away and we watch as the crowd watches as he leads that goat away further and further away, finally out of sight and the scapegoat bearing the sins of the people designed by God himself having given command that this should be done once a year on the day of atonement. The scapegoat carries 
bears the sins of all of the nation out into the wilderness, and he's never heard from again. As he goes out of sight, the people watch with bated breath, and then through a series of signals with flags, as there are people stationed along the way, they make the word known that the scapegoat is outside of the camp and is now in the wilderness, and he has borne our sins away. And there is suddenly, as one man, a great shout of praise that comes forth from all of the people. Imagine one and a half million people shouting, praising God because their sins have been carried away. And what a sight it is. But there's a problem. Oh, yes, there's a big problem. Because you see, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 4 says, It is impossible, impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. What did he say? Huh? Now wait a minute. I read in Leviticus 16.22, that God himself says to Moses, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, literally in Hebrew, to a land cut off, and he shall release that goat in the wilderness. The goat bears the sins of the people away. Yet, the New Testament says... It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. What do we have here? Do we have a contradiction? Is the Bible contradicting itself? How can this be? And now we travel from this point into the future to the latter 8th century B.C. And we are now in Jerusalem. And there's a prophet. He's one of the favorite of the people. Oh, he's eloquent. His name is Isaiah. And he has just penned his fourth servant song. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. And here Isaiah introduces us to a mysterious figure called the Lord's servant, the suffering servant. Who is this guy? Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. It's interesting, you will see the phrase, my servant here, and at the very end of Isaiah 53, in verses 11 and 12, in verse 11 specifically, you will see once again, my servant. Now, Isaiah is not the speaker. He's the penman, but he's not the speaker of this first of five beautifully symmetrical paragraphs that we call the servant song. I wonder who he's talking about. Behold, my servant. You will find this servant song divides into five paragraphs of three verses each. It is unbelievably symmetrical. The first and the last correspond, the second and the fourth correspond, and the central passage, verses 4, 5, and 6, serves as the heart of the entire song. It's beautiful Hebrew prophecy and poetry wedded together. You will not find anywhere in your Old Testament Hebrew anything as grand, as glorious, as beautiful as what you will find in the fourth servant song. We'll not have time to unpack everything that is here today, but I do want to attempt a brief exposition of the verses of these psalms, of of this song, because I want us to understand who is the suffering servant. And so Isaiah begins recording in 52 verse 13, 13, 14, and 15, and he is recording what God says, and God, the speaker, says, behold, my servant will prosper. Interesting word there, he will prosper. It's a Hebrew word that describes the action and the result. 
that comes from the action. My servant will prosper. He will be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. Mark those three phrases and just hold them for a little bit. Wow, here's somebody high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. I wonder who this guy is. Who is this guy? Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, people of Israel, so his, the servant's appearance, was marred more than any man, and his form marred more than the sons of men. What? Wait a minute, how can he be high and lifted up and exalted? But now, yet there is astonishment, and we're aghast at what we read, the shuddering of it, as many were astonished at you. So his appearance was marred more than any man. What could possibly have happened to mar his appearance? What could he have possibly gone through? He's one who is high and exalted and lifted up, and yet now we are told, astonishingly, that he is his appearance is marred more than that of any man, more than that of the sons of men. Verse 15 continues, Then he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told, then they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. My gracious, what an unusual statement. We're told that he will sprinkle many nations. That is, depending on which root in the Hebrew you take that from, it could very well be sprinkle the nations. What on earth does that mean? He'll sprinkle the nations. Or there's another root it could come from, this word that's used, it's translated sprinkle here, and it could be related to the word astonished. It comes from a root word that means to leap. Just like when someone sneaks up on you and you're not ready and they say, boo, and you jump, you leap, you're astonished, you're startled. And that could be the meaning here. And it's heavily debated back and forth, back and forth of scholars of Isaiah 53 as to whether it means sprinkling or whether it means startling. But whatever it means, it is clear that there is something about this servant who is high and exalted and yet his physical appearance marred more than any man that there is something about him that is going to impact all of the nations of the world. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? What, what could... Who could he be? What could he be about? He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. He will startle kings. Kings won't know what to say, won't know what to think. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. What a stupendous event. One without precedent. An epoch-making event is the description that's given here. A unique event, something totally out of the ordinary, something unusual that is even unrepeatable. What on earth could this be? I wonder, who is this guy? Then I come to 53.1, the second paragraph, verses 1, 2, and 3. And now the speaker shifts from Yahweh himself to the prophet. In fact, the prophet is speaking on behalf of the people, and you will notice all of the we and our and us's that are found through here. And so here is Isaiah speaking as the representative for the people of Israel. Who has believed our message? Luther translates that. Who has believed our preaching? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, these two questions are meant to catch your attention and startle you as well. And they're meant to convey the concept of who would have thought God's power would look like this? Who would have ever thought and ever foreseen this kind of a plot line that this suffering servant would be high and exalted yet marred more than any man? How can these two coexist? How how can this be? This doesn't make sense. And then verse 2 has a further explanation as to why the people responded the way they did. Notice the little word for. For he grew up before him, capital H, he grew up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Interesting. This servant, whomever he is, has lowly origins. Why? He grows up, look at it, like a tender shoot. The word means a a sprig, 
a scrawny, scrubby little sprig. And not only that, but he emerges from parched ground. Now, anybody knows if you've got well-watered ground, then you can get a good plant. But from parched ground, he comes from almost nowhere, from adverse circumstances, from difficult situations. And yet, this is his origin, his lowly origin. And not only that, look at his unattractiveness. Because he goes on in verse 2 to say, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He has no stately form. That means he has no beautiful appearance. He has no majesty. That means he has no honor of kings. He sure doesn't look like a king. And then furthermore, that third statement there. And he was, his appearance, the scripture says, was that we should not be attracted to him. In other words, he's just Mr. Average. No George Clooney here. No Brad Pitt here. No picture on People magazine here. Oh, no. Whoever this guy is, whoever this man is, whoever this person is, he is someone who is just Mr. Average. Not only that, but verse 3, there is a resume of reasons as to why we, we didn't have anything to do with him. Verse 3 says, he was despised. He was forsaken of men. Number 3, a man of sorrows. Number 4, acquainted with grief. Number 5, like one from whom we hide our faces. Number 6, despised, a repetition, emphasizing the importance of the fact that he was despised. And number 7, and we did not esteem him. My goodness, what a resume of reasons to reject him. Who is this guy? It's unbelievable. He was despised. He was forsaken of men, and then you have that he was forsaken, ishim, of men, and then immediately, ish, a man of sorrows. The careful juxtaposing of those two words to emphasize that though all other men forsook him and rejected him, yet on top of that, he himself, ish, he himself is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And not only is he a man who occasionally has sorrows, but the reference in Hebrew describes an entire description of a lifetime. From beginning to end, it's like one great sorrow. And he is acquainted with grief. He knows grief like a close friend. He's on personal terms with suffering and grief. My gracious, who is he? And like one from whom men hide their faces, he's revolting. Like John Merrick, the elephant man. We can't look at him. We don't want to look at him. He's revolting. Like someone whose face disfigured in an accident or war. And we see him and we're, we can't look and we wince and he, it's revolting. Like one from whom we hide our faces. He was despised. Same word again. And we did not esteem him. And Luther translates that. We estimated him at nothing. He's a zero. A zero. He's a loser. He's a loser. He's no one that we would pay any attention to. We turn our heads away from him. He's dissed. He gets the cold shoulder. He doesn't rate. He's treated like scum. Who is this guy? That he would be thought of in such a way. That he would be treated in such a way. Then comes... Verses 4, 5, and 6. You better take off your shoes now as we come to the central section of the servant song because in these verses, astounding things are said about him. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he himself carried. Whoa, wait a minute, hold the phone. There is a sudden reversal, a startling discovery made by Isaiah and made by all of the people and those of us there with him today. The startling discovery is that the griefs and the sorrows that was described of him in verse 3 are now found to be our griefs and our sorrows. And notice in poetic fashion they are how they are reversed. Notice how it is in verse 3. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But in verse 4, it is 
grief, and sorrows, direct parallelism. Surely our griefs, look at that word surely in Hebrew, affirmation and contrast all at the same time, designed to arrest your attention. Surely our griefs he himself bore. It is a powerful statement. It is the use of the personal pronoun when it doesn't have to be used, but it's used there for emphasis. It's our griefs that he bore. Something about that word, bore, surely our griefs he himself bore. I wonder, I wonder, where have I heard that before? And our sorrows, he, another emphatic pronoun, he in Hebrew, carried. Yet we ourselves, look at the emphasis, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. To drive the point, the author is using a, an active verb at the beginning of verse 4 and then switching to three passive participles, all in different tenses at the end of verse 4, all to drive home the uniqueness and the, the epic-making experience that's taking place. Yet we ourselves esteemed him to be stricken, to be smitten of God, to be afflicted. Oh, now we know what's wrong with the servant. Now we're beginning to get the picture. We know how it works. All of us who live in the 8th century B.C. know that if somebody has great sorrow and great suffering, we know why that is. Of course, it's because they sinned. It's either God punishing them or the demons are punishing them. One or the other, but that's why this guy's suffering, huh? It must be. There's got to be something to that. But yet, that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says that he is not suffering for his own sins. He is not paying a price for anything he had done. But rather, Isaiah says, our griefs and our sorrows he carried though we esteemed him to be smitten by God. Must have been something he did, but no, there's a dawning realization that more is afoot here. And so verse 5 continues, but he was pierced through for our transgression. When you see that word pierced in Isaiah, and when you see it in the Old Testament, most of the time it means pierced through and death recurs. He, or death occurs. He was pierced through. Why? Why was he pierced through? He was pierced through for our transgressions. Why was he crushed? The word in Hebrew means pulverized. Why was he pulverized? He was pulverized for our iniquities. It is nothing he did, but it is everything we did. He is crushed. He is bruised. He is pulverized. And then Isaiah goes on to say, our peace punishment was upon him. Now that's not how it reads in your English Bible. It's very difficult to express the Hebrew, the beauty of the Hebrew as it is expressed here by Isaiah. But that's a literal rendering. Our peace punishment was on him. And this is the way that the Hebrew is able to express the concept that by his punishment, his punishment brings us peace with God. Who is this guy? How, how can he do this? Who is this guy? Our peace punishment. The punishment we deserve. Yet he took, why did he do that? Why would he do that? Who is this guy? Who is this servant who suffers, who takes all of our punishment for our sins upon himself so that we might have peace? And furthermore, latter part of verse 5 states, and by his scourging we are healed. He is the wounded healer. It's by his scourging. It's by his stripes. It is by his, the word in Hebrew means open wounds that are brought about from a beating. And because of that, somehow we are healed? How, how could this be? I don't understand it. Verse 6. Kulanu, first word in the Hebrew text of verse 6. Last word in the Hebrew text of verse 6. Kulanu. This is a book ending. All of us, all of us 
and the author sandwiches everything between those two words. All of us, kulanu, like sheep have gone astray. And then, that's not only true for all of us, now look at the individuality. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Notice the responsibility. Not accidentally have we strayed, but deliberately we have turned our own way. All of us have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the verse doesn't end. But... Emphatic in the Hebrew text is the next word, Yahweh. But the Lord, but Yahweh has caused the iniquities of us all to fall on Him. So that literally it reads, Yahweh has caused to fall upon Him the iniquity of us all. Kulanu ends the text. He, the Lord, caused it to happen. The iniquity of all of us. All of us, not some of us, not most of us, all of us, everybody, Isaiah says, all of the people of Israel. And because the other three servant songs make the point that the servant is going to impact the nations, he'll be a light to the nations, he'll bring salvation to the nations, then all of the people of all nations and all of the world are included. The Lord has made the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It's unbelievable. There are nearly 7 billion people on planet earth today. 7 billion foul sewers of sin in one rushing, roaring, filthy, malodorous flood was poured out upon the one suffering servant. All of us and one took that upon himself. Who is this guy? How does he do this? Why is he doing it? What is his purpose? What is the intent? Verse 7, and paragraph number 4 continues. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. They took him away through oppressive justice, injustice. And they took him away. And like a lamb that is led to be sheared, he stands there and is sheared, but he makes not a bleeding sound. And like a sheep being led to the slaughter for sacrifice or slaughter for food or whatever, the sheep not knowing that in the next moment the knife will... He'll be gone and his life's blood will pour out. Yet not a sound does he make. Like a sheep totally silent before his shearer, so the suffering servant didn't open his mouth. Who is this guy? Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he's taken away, and so his generation, and for his generation, who considered it? He was cut off from the land of the living. His punishment and his suffering brought him to the place of death. Make no mistake about it, the suffering servant not only suffers, here he dies. He dies. The punishment upon him, the suffering that he experiences, the physical suffering and the dying in the place of the sins of the people together press down upon him and as it were pulverize him into the ground and he dies. He's cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. It was due us. We should have been pulverized. We should have been disciplined. We should have been punished. But no, no, he is punished. Now, wait a minute. What do I read about the subjects of this punishing of the suffering servant? It's not only my sins that cause it, but I read carefully in 4, 5, and 6, and again in the latter verses, it is Yahweh himself who does this. Whoever this suffering servant is, his suffering is caused by our sin, but ultimately his suffering is due to the hand and plan of God. That is astounding, isn't it? How can that be? His grave, verse 9, after he dies, is assigned with wicked men. 
That was the intent of the people. After he's dead, just throw his body out there where we put all the rest of the criminal trash. And yet, startlingly, he was with a rich man in his death. And the word death there is the plural of intensity. He was in his death placed in his martyr death. It's an intense kind of thing. In his martyr death, yet he's buried, he's placed with a rich man. My gracious. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Well, now I know that whoever the suffering servant is can't be Isaiah. Because you see in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, when Isaiah came face to face with Yahweh, Isaiah makes this exclamation, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. And so whoever the suffering servant is, it's clear, it cannot be Isaiah, and it cannot be the people corporately. He was a man, look, who did no wrong, no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Then the last paragraph, verses 10, 11, and 12. But, the disjunctive wall in Hebrew, but the Lord, emphatic position for Yahweh, was pleased to crush him. Here it is again. This is the Lord's doing. This was the will of God. This was the will of Yahweh. He was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. God did this. If he would render himself as an asham, as a guilt offering. And there's no, the concept there of if he would render, though it is a good translation, there's no conditionality about it. He has rendered himself as a guilt offering, which references back to Leviticus, particularly chapters 5, 6, and 7, where you read about the sin offering and the guilt offering. He is an asham. His, His He's offering himself. He's being offered like a sacrifice in the Levitical system. He would render himself as a guilt offering. Look carefully. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't miss it. It says that God was pleased to crush him, but now it says he voluntarily rendered himself. How can this be? How can both be true? This isn't possible. It's either one or the other. No, it's both. It was the will of Yahweh, God, that he should be crushed. And yet, whoever this servant is, he is one who voluntarily took this offering of himself upon himself. And because of that, notice what will happen. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, wait a minute. Dead people don't see their offspring. And yet, he will see his offspring. Look at the next statement. Not only that, he will prolong his days. That's the whole point of being cut off. Dead people are cut off. They don't prolong their days. How can this be? How can the Lord prosper him? The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How can it happen when he's dead? I don't know, but I must conclude that somehow the language makes clear to me that the suffering servant, after he is dead, is going to rise from the dead. Who is this guy? How, how could this be? Verse 11 says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And now the voice of Yahweh himself returns and the pen of Isaiah, the voice of Isaiah ceases. And as the suffering, the fourth servant psalm begins with God speaking, now it ends with God speaking. And in the middle part of verse 11, the voice of God says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. By his knowledge, by his experiential sufferings, by what he went through on behalf of the people, and now what he knows experientially, that will cause him to be able to justify the many. And here many means all, as it does in all three of its uses in the verses 11 and 12, because contextually it's dependent on verse 6, where all means all. And so now he will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Not just some of the people. He will bear all of their iniquities. He will bear their iniquities. And that phrase, their iniquities, is placed first in the Hebrew clause to emphasize the filthiness, the dirtiness, the ugliness of it. 
and the evilness of it. And it's that. It's our iniquities, our iniquities that he will bear. Who is this guy? How could this be? How could it be possible that he would bear my iniquities? Verse 12, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the the rabim, the many, or translated here probably correctly, the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. He's going to have victory. And he'll divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself, Nasa, bore the sin of the many and interceded for the transgressors. There it is again. Nasa bore. Nasa bore. Wait a minute. Oh, I know. I remember Leviticus 16, 22. That goat shall. There it is. Nasa. That goat, that scapegoat shall. Nasa bear on itself all of their, ah, same word, iniquities to a land cut off. Just like the scapegoat carried the sin, the guilt, and the punishment for that sin for all of the people. And he was carried out and he was cut off. So the suffering servant, whoever he is, Nasa, he bears just like the scapegoat of Leviticus 16. He bears the sin of many. He bears the sins of the nation of Israel. He bears the sins of the world. And he carries them out. He bears them and intercedes for the transgressors. But wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did I read back at the very beginning of verse 13 of chapter 52, the very beginning of the servant song? I said, remember those three phrases. He will be high, he will be lifted up, and he will be greatly exalted. He will be high and he will be nasa, lifted up. Same word that begins the servant song, ends the servant song. But now, instead of bearing the iniquities at the end, we're told at the very beginning that this suffering servant, whomever he is, who would bear all of our sins would also be nasa. He would be lifted up in exaltation by God himself and that phrase, that phrase that you find in verse 13, high, lifted up, and greatly exalted, literally in Hebrew, that latter latter phrase, exalted, high. High, very, literally in Hebrew. Those, that phrase is used three times only in the Old Testament, all three by Isaiah, and all three are always used only of Yahweh himself. Who is this guy that God himself would take language applied only to himself? High, exalted, high, very, highly lifted up and declaim that this suffering servant is on an equal level with Yahweh. How could God do such a thing? Who is this guy? Now we go forward in time to A.D. 30. Same city, Jerusalem. An upper room. It's nighttime. And in Luke chapter 22 and verse 37, we come to an upper room. And in that upper room, there are 12 guys, 12 disciples, who are followers of one man, His name is uh, Jesus. Who is this guy, Jesus? Well, he had very unusual birth circumstances. He performed lots of miracles during his life. And then along about midway through his ministry, began to make it very clear to his disciples and others that he was claiming to be God in human flesh. What? You're kidding me, huh? Nope, not kidding you at all. He's claiming to be God in human flesh. And now he has brought his disciples together for a last meal. We call it the Last Supper. Because he's now telling his 12 disciples and those of us who are with him through time travel in the room as we listen and watch that tomorrow he will die. 
and he will die in a very unusual way. Interestingly enough, John's account of the beginning of the Last Supper episode, John, in John 12, 28, quotes the first verse of Isaiah 53. It's his preface to the Last Supper. Matthew, in Matthew 26, 28, records Jesus saying in the middle of the Last Supper, this is my blood which is poured out for many an allusion or indirect reference to Isaiah 53 for the forgiveness of sins. But it is only Luke among the gospel writers in chapter 22 and verse 37 at the very end of the Last Supper who makes the point that Jesus himself in verse 37 quoted the last verse of Isaiah 53 and thus taking all of the fourth servant song and applying it to himself so that he could say in verse 37, for I tell you that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. There's Isaiah 53, last verse, verse 12. The last statement, he was numbered with the transgressors for that which refers to me, has its fulfillment. Now I know who the suffering servant is. Now it's clear who he is. It's not Isaiah, it's not corporate Israel, it's not any one of the other 16 people so identified with him by Hebrew scholars. No, Jesus himself says, I am the suffering servant. And earlier... In the last, in the giving of the cup and the bread to the disciples, only Luke records that Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant. Everybody else, Matthew, Mark, John, this cup is the covenant in my blood, but not Luke. No, this cup is the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. And then taking the passage from Isaiah 53 and putting it on his lips, he speaks these very words, does Jesus? indicating, make no mistake, boys, I'm the suffering servant. And what I'm about to do tomorrow when I go to a cross, I'm doing for you. And not only that, but like that scapegoat who bore the sins of all the people, and like that suffering servant who would be a light to the nations and who would bear the sins of all, so when I go to the cross tomorrow, I will bear the sins of of the world, like that scapegoat, as the suffering servant, I will die in your place. That's exactly what Jesus did as time fast forwards quickly to the next day. And as he is arrested that late that night in the garden, and as he is shifted back and forth through mock trials, and as finally he is condemned to die, and as he's placed in the hands of Romans, and as he is beaten, and as his face becomes so disfigured, and as the crown of thorns is pressed upon his brow, and finally when Pilate washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of the blood of this man, his own wife said, don't have anything to do with him, he's innocent. When he went to the cross, the thief on the cross turned to the other thief and said, this man has done nothing wrong. And then when he died, the centurion turned, a calloused centurion, and said, surely this was a righteous man all in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And when he went to that cross and when he died on that cross, please understand that as the scapegoat was the substitution for the people and as the suffering servant was the substitution for the people, so Jesus is conducting a substitutionary penal atonement, a penal substitutionary atonement. And it is foundational to Christian doctrine and orthodoxy that whatever else you say about the atonement and whatever other metaphors there may be to describe the atonement, and there are many, at the root and at the heart, the biblical materials make clear He died as a substitute in our place. Don't ever forget it and don't ever stop preaching it. He is our substitute. And when he died, strange things happened. Strange things, oh yes. We know from the biblical record that the moment of his death, something happened between the holy place and the holy of holies to that thick two-inch curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The Bible says it was torn, ripped from top to bottom. It was opened up so that now the place where no one could ever go except the high priest on Yom Kippur, 
Now all of us can go because the blood sacrifice of Jesus has made it possible. He has once and for all, as the author of Hebrews said, made atonement for our sins. And now the whole Levitical system is useless. It's worthless. It's obsolete because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come and has given His life as the suffering servant in our place. That's not all that happened. It was odd and unusual. The rabbis, after the destruction of Jerusalem, wrote in the Babylonian Talmud that strange and weird and odd things happened 40 years before the destruction of the temple. I was never good in math, but the destruction of the temple occurred in A.D. 70, if you subtract 40 from 70, you get A.D. Thank you very much. And this is what the rabbis wrote, for it is taught on Tanaitic authority in olden times on the Day of Atonement after the high priest performed his special worship. Forty years here before the destruction of Jerusalem, they would tie a crimson thread to the outside of the door of the temple entranceway. If it turned white, the people would rejoice. If it did not turn white, the people would be grieved. They ordained that they should tie it to the inside of the door of the temple entranceway, but still the people would peek and see if it had turned white. And if it did, the people would rejoice. If it did not turn white, the people would be grieved. That crimson thread, miraculously, apparently, according to Jewish tradition and authority, would turn white if God had accepted the atonement made on Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah 32a says it is taught on Tanaitic authority. Forty years prior to the destruction of the temple, the crimson thread did not turn white but remained red. The same is found in the Talmud of Jerusalem, Yom 6.4. It has been taught 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the crimson thread remained red. Something happened around A.D. 30, according to the Jewish rabbis, that caused God no longer to regard the Day of Atonement as a Day of Atonement. And it happened 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jewish rabbis say from A.D. 30 to 70, the cord didn't turn white. And you and I know why. It didn't turn white. And old Isaiah in chapter 1, along about verse 18, says, Come, reason with me. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So, 2,000 years ago, The suffering servant and Lamb of God was born contrary to the laws of nature. He was born in poverty. He was reared in obscurity. His parents were inconspicuous, didn't have any training, didn't have any formal education. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived, and that was during his exile and childhood. Yet in infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled the doctors at the temple at the age of 12. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature and walked upon the waves of the sea. And at the sound of his voice, the wind and the waves like little dogs lay down at his feet. He never wrote a book. Yet all the libraries in the land today can't hold the books that have been written about the suffering servant Jesus. He never wrote a song, and yet he's furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters near and far. He never practiced medicine, yet he healed a multitude of their sicknesses because by his stripes we are healed, and he is the wounded healer. He never practiced psychiatry, yet he healed a multitude of broken minds and broken hearts as the great physician and the great psychiatrist. He healed Peter's denying heart and Thomas's doubting heart and the Roman soldier's calloused heart and the Gadarene demoniac's demon-possessed heart and Martha's crowded heart and Zacchaeus's greedy heart and everybody else that he came in contact with then 
as now. He's the wounded healer. He heals my mind and he heals my heart. The names of the great world leaders, dictators, statesmen, politicians, philosophers, religious leaders, and on and on you tick off the list have come and gone, but his name abounds more and more. Once each week the wheels of commerce will slow their turning and hundreds of thousands will make their way to worship the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is today upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory. He is proclaimed by God. He is acknowledged by angels. He is adored by Christians and feared by demons as the living personal Christ, the Lamb of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.